This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, folks, and thanks for tuning in to AOA on this Friday, January 7th. I certainly hope all of you have been having a good week. We've got a pretty good show to wrap it up. We're going to be talking today with the American Soybean Association Biofuels Policy Lead, Alexa Kambelik, later on in the program. Biofuels have been hot, biodiesel in particular this past year. Alexa looks at what's happening in Washington, D.C. to keep this market going. She'll share those updates in segment two. Segment three, Arlen Sue. Will be joining me. We've got some news on jobs out today. We continue to see inflation be a factor, and the grain markets are moving. Ireland will help us make sense of what all's happening when we look outside of our backyards at the rest of the world. And at the end of the show, we're going to get an update from Chad Colby. He's the tech expert on this week in agribusiness. And this past week, he had the chance to go to Las Vegas to hang around the Consumer Electronics Show CES out there, one of the largest tech shows in the country. And they had a focus on ag this year in several of the booths. And Chad will give us an update on that. Before we dive into all of that, it's important that we keep up to speed on how things are moving throughout the countryside. And we talk about moving grain. We got to rely on the rivers. We've got to rely on the locks and dams. And there's one guy who keeps track of all of this stuff, and that's Mike Steenhook from the Soy Transportation Coalition. Mike is joining me now. Dredging, Mike, is happening in the lower Mississippi. I understand we're starting to make some progress. Can you give us an update? Yeah, it's really exciting to see. So this is a, a project that has been a long an aspiration for stakeholders down in Louisiana as well as those of us in, in the Midwest, and that's to see the lower Mississippi River deepens from 45 feet of minimal water depth to 50 feet of minimal water depth. And why this is consequential to soybean and corn farmers is this is the area of the country that accounts for 60% of U.S. soybean exports, 59% of corn exports. It's by far the number one launching point for both commodities onto the international marketplace. This stretch of the river that's from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, it snakes past New Orleans and then empties into the Gulf of Mexico. A lot of export facilities are located there. And after a lot of effort from you know, our friends in Louisiana, uh, Midwest agriculture certainly played a prominent role, we received the green light for that project to proceed in early 2020 uh, to deepen that, that lower river from 45 feet to 50 feet. And the work actually commenced in September of, of 2020. And we were very pleased that recently uh, those entities that are responsible for ocean transportation through that lower stretch of the river increased the allowable river depth to 48 feet. And you know, again, ultimately, we're, the goal is to get to that 50 feet, but it's been encouraging to see this announcement that we're seeing progress made. There's these incremental steps that we were always planning on but we're seeing it come to fruition and um, you know a lot of times we have these projects that they they get the green light and then you never really see did that ever end up happening and this is happening and and as a result the the whole export program is becoming more competitive for u.s soybean and corn farmers and that's a good thing it is and mike you mentioned it's happening and it's happening I which what appears to me as an outsider to be with relative speed. September 2020, we started the project. We've already got boats running a little bit deeper here recently. Did Hurricane Ike not cause any problems or were they able to just bounce back and keep working? Yeah, I mean, that was that certainly shut down the, the hurricane last year. It, it shut down uh, operations for a period of time. Obviously, they needed to vacate all vessels in that uh, lower stretch of the river. But they were able to resume pretty quickly with uh, with the deepening. And you know, one of the things about that part of the river is you don't have to dredge the whole stretch of it. There are just certain pockets that might have sediment build up here. And then if you address that, then there's naturally deep water for dozens, if not hundred, hundred, you know, hundred miles. And then you have to attend to another area. So that's kind of the nature of dredging the lower Mississippi River. So because of the work that's done this far, you, we now have a, the first 150 miles, so you've got the, the, the Gulf of Mexico, 
New Orleans is river mile 100. So we're going past New Orleans another 50 miles. So 150 miles of the river is open to that new 48 feet of, of water depth. And, you know, anytime you increase a foot of water depth, you're able to load more revenue-producing freight per vessel. Um, we estimate another 100,000 bushels of soybeans per foot. So, you know, that, that just simply improves the economics uh, of our industry. It, it makes our supply chain more economical. And you mentioned another 100,000 bushels per foot. That's per barge load, right? That's, I mean, per barge uh, uh, train. I forget what you call them. Yeah, per it per ocean vessel. So you've got the barges oh. that brings product down from the Midwest, and then it gets loaded in turn onto an ocean vessel, and then it gets exported. So that will be um, you're able to put more. You know, obviously, every time you load more bushels per ocean vessel, the ocean vessel sinks deeper into the water. So you have to make sure you've got sufficient depth of that shipping channel. And you know, we we estimate that when you eventually get to that 50 feet. So going from that 45 feet of minimal depth to 50 feet of minimal depth, we'll be able to get an additional 500,000 bushels per ocean vessel. So essentially going from 2.4 million bushels to 2.9 million bushels. So that's a notable increase. And again, for an industry that, you know, we don't have huge elaborate profit margins for soybean farmers, corn farmers. Well, we make our money by having a, a modest profit margin and then you multiply that by millions and billions of bushels. So if you're able to reduce a number of cents per bushel on the delivered price uh, by making transportation more efficient, by loading more bushels per ocean vessel, you're going to improve the competitiveness of the U.S. soybean farmer and, and corn farmers. So that's you know, one of the, the big reasons why we were so attentive to this project. Yeah, and I noticed in your uh, your recent update on this matter, you just you mentioned that uh, really shipping costs could decline as much as thirteen cents per bushel. That's five dollars per metric ton. That makes us a lot more competitive on the global scene, and it doesn't uh, you know cost farmers in the Midwest anymore to have this easier freight option coming out of the the Gulf. Yeah, and you know one of the things that we routinely express is that you know in, in South America they usually can produce soybeans at at a lower cost than we do in the United States. Um, but where we make up that competitive, um, where we, we achieve our competitive advantage is by being able to transport products more efficiently than they do in South America. And, and that Mississippi River to ocean vessel and then onto the international market is a real key component of that. So that's something where we, we always want to make sure that we're continuing to invest and fortify that particular supply chain. Indeed. Mike, when are we going to get some updates from the Army Corps on when the infrastructure money might be uh, rolled out for locks and dams? We could see that uh, over the next week. So I think by Friday of next week, we anticipate seeing the list of projects that will receive funding uh, during the course of 2022. And so there's been a lot of attention by agricultural groups, our friends in the barge and towing industry, organizations like the Waterways Council to really make sure that those projects do make that list. So it's a very key time for us that to get that priority, those priority projects on that list. All right. Well, once we get that list from the Army Corps, Mike, we'll get you back on, see how that could impact agriculture. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Hey, thank you, Mike. Good to visit with you. And folks, when AOA returns, we'll be talking biodiesel with Alexa Kambelik of ASA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. For more than 135 years, the editors of Progressive Farmer have provided generations of farmers and ranchers with the information they need and trust to make informed and profitable decisions. We know you need that content delivered on multiple platforms, so it's available when you want it. That's why we created our weekly podcast called Field Posts. Join me, Sarah Mock, each week as I interview agriculture's top thought leaders, as well as farming's most diverse team of editors at the Progressive Farmer and DTN on a wide range of subject matter. From farm policy and crop production to finances, technology, and so much more, you'll have a front row seat to learn and engage in what's happening in agriculture today. You can find the podcast listed on all your favorite podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Pandora, or by visiting our website at dtnpf.com. 
youtube.com backslash field posts. Recently on Agriculture of America, we had a couple important reports released by the USDA. We saw their cattle on feed report come out. We also had the quarterly hogs and pigs report come out. Dennis Smith from Archer Financial Services, not many surprises. Not many surprises. The uh, the marketing number was a good solid number at 105. One extra marketing day. Placements were at 104. Looking forward or, or looking at the reaction to this, I would think you should see some bull spread activity. In other words, the front end of the market, I would think, would be a little stronger than the back end of the market. We're pivoting or we're looking for the, the next cash market, 135 last week. There's talk of uh, maybe it'll be much closer to 140 when it gets established later this week. For the information important to rural America, join us on Agriculture of America. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice U.S. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. We are talking about agriculture. Specifically in this segment, we are talking about biodiesel. I'm going to be joined by Alexa Kambelik. She is the policy lead for biofuels at the American Soybean Association. And we have a lot of news in that space. Alexa, thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. Hi, Mike. Good to be with you. I want to talk first. Earlier this week, we heard from Jeff Cooper. He was uh, testifying with the EPA virtual hearing about the renewable volume obligation adjustments they made here at the tail end of 2021. And Alexa, those RVOs are vitally important to biodiesel as well. Can you tell us what was your take on the EPA's release of those uh, volume obligations? Yeah, I think, you know, the American Soybean Association really saw this as, as a mixed bag. We didn't see any increases in, uh, in, in the 2020 and 2021 RBO. In fact, um, you know, while it remained the same for, for bio-based diesel, we did see that number go down for other uh, biofuels. And for the 2022 um, uh, RBO, proposed RBO, it was a big increase, and you know, for that we were we were excited, and and we are looking forward to seeing what this means for the EPA in the future. That you know they are going to hold this commitment to farmers and rural America, and continue to increase those volumes moving forward. We would have liked to see a, a proposed RBO for 2023, and we hope to see that soon. Uh, but we do see this as the EPA getting back on track, um, and for that we are grateful. That is a good sign. As you look ahead and the excitement that has been building around biodiesel, renewable diesel, all of the low carbon options that are out there for fuel sources, with the EPA finally you know, ratcheting up that RVO for biodiesel, Alexa, are, do we have the infrastructure in place to produce enough biodiesel to meet these obligations? We believe we do, Mike, and I, I think we're really excited about this. We have, uh, you're seeing an, an increase in, in crush facilities uh, throughout the Midwest. There has been, uh, you know, new commitments that, that we're hearing about, new crush facilities already coming online uh, to meet that growing demand, both in, in the growth of 
uh, renewable diesel, specifically on the West Coast, and also uh, to meet the demand of our, our, our current biodiesel producers in the Midwest. Um, and then in addition to that, we're, we're seeing a growth of sustainable aviation fuel. So we just see this industry continuing to grow, and, and we're looking forward to meeting those needs. That sustainable aviation fuel, SAF, that has really got grabbed a lot of headlines here in 2021. It's probably poised to in 2022. Tell us a little bit how soybean oil fits in with SAF. Is, is it one of the primary feedstocks for this uh, sustainable aviation fuel? Well, you know, they're they're still discussing uh, the the SAF tax credit that that hopefully will be uh, included in in some sort of uh, funding bill here uh, in Congress in the near future, and and what feedstocks would be eligible for that. And right now, we think that you know soybean oil will play a large role in that. The Biden administration. Uh, has stated, uh, you know, they have really aggressive goals on decarbonizing the aviation sector domestically. And to do that, they really need to use uh, soybean oil on the front end to meet those goals. Uh, we are uh, an available feedstock that, uh, you know, can be used now, uh, that is an approved pathway for SAF now. And so I think, um, you know, there is still a lot of development going on in this space, but, um, you know, we're, we're here and we're excited about new market opportunities. From the policy perspective, looking out over 2022, Alexa, is there anything that soybean growers, folks tied to the soybean industry, need to be pushing for? Is there anything on the chopping block in D.C. that helps support the biodiesel industry as, as we know it today? Well, uh, just, just about every year, we're uh, continuing to ask for a continuation of the biodiesel tax credit. Um, and, and now certainly looking forward to a sustainable aviation fuel tax credit as well to spur growth in both of these industries. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of talk about electrification. And I think that, you know, as folks are talking about electrifying vehicles, we need to talk about the fact that there are going to be millions of vehicles on the road using biodiesel for, for a long time to come. And that we are a transition fuel that can be used to decarbonize the transportation sector as we try to move to a uh, no-carbon economy. You know, I was just reading, there was a study published, I think it was yesterday or Wednesday from Capital Policy Analytics. They were looking at the impact of the biodiesel tax credit. And Alexa, they found that it more than doubles the cost of the credit in environmental benefits that the country is gaining over a dollar more from this $1 tax credit. Do you see any changes coming to that tax credit? It's been a dollar since 2005. Any chance the Biden administration could increase it? I don't think that they're looking to increase it, but I do think that we're hoping for a, a long-term extension of that tax credit in the future. Okay, but we're not going to have any decisions on that anytime soon. Well, they were looking at including it in the, the Build Back Better proposal. So hopefully, you know, if, if that gets passed, it will be included in that as well as that sustainable aviation fuel tax credit. And do we know on the sustainable aviation fuel how much they're thinking for a tax credit? Has any numbers, have any numbers been floated around? Sure. So, so it does keep changing, and certainly this is all still in flux. I believe that the latest, uh, the latest proposal had it at a a dollar twenty five. Uh, credit to begin with for a 50% carbon reduction, with that going up one cent to a dollar 75 for every percentage of point of reduction after that. So it's on a sliding scale based on uh, the the carbon reduction that that fuel has. And from the numbers that have been floating around, the dollar 75, as you mentioned there. How much does that shift the economics for airlines looking to get into sustainable aviation fuel? Do you think that's a big enough figure to jumpstart this and, and keep it moving? Well, I think a lot of airlines have already made a commitment to uh, decarbonizing their, their companies. And so uh, there is already a push to do this. There is already momentum behind it. I think that this will just that, that, that final growth that is needed uh, to get the production of the fuel underway in a, an affordable manner uh, to really, to really jumpstart this program.
While we're talking biodiesel, I want to look over at where else it can fit into decarbonizing our energy economy. And uh, I think it was just before Christmas, tail end of 2021, New York State announced they are going to require a biodiesel blending requirement for heating oil. So to, to decarbonize folks as they're heating their house. Alexa, we haven't discussed a lot of how biodiesel can work into larger scale energy projects. Do you see this as a, a potential? large area for biodiesel to to go well bioheat is certainly a, a really big uh big market for for biodiesel and you look at the northeast where over 40 percent of homes are heated by oil heat um, those are states that already have aggressive decarbonization goals and and biodiesel is already playing a very large role in in decarbonization there and in you know just the oil heat that everyday customers are using in their homes. And so I think as states continue to look for ways to decarbonize and to um, find new ways to incentivize the use of biofuels, um, that that is certainly a, a large opportunity um, that we will see beyond the Northeast uh, and hopefully throughout the country soon. Is there opportunity for biodiesel to go in the direction of electrical generation? You mentioned the Biden administration is very hot on EVs, electric vehicles, and the like. The challenges, of course, those are powered by coal plants, gas plants, nuclear plants, whatever. Is there a way that biodiesel can, can be a power generation source longer term? I think a lot of that, uh, you know, remains to be seen, and, and certainly there's not a lot on the on the policy front right now about using biodiesel as, as an electrical generation source, large scale. Um, but I do think, you know, in the short term, we are here to to serve as a transition fuel uh, to lower carbon emissions right now, um, and certainly looking to the future, uh, we are always looking for new market opportunities, and and perhaps that's something uh, that that can be developed. Forward. And well, speaking of new market opportunities, exports obviously look like a good option. Do you see biodiesel exports growing in 2022 or are we going to need it all domestically? I think that demand domestically is, is certainly growing. You look at a lot of the state laws uh, that are that are being put in place specifically on the West Coast, very aggressive uh, state policies being put in place in Washington, Oregon, and California uh, that are going to, to increase that demand for biodiesel. All right, a lot of things to keep an eye on as that policy changes. Alexa, we'll get you back on for an update. Thanks for jumping on today. Thank you, Mike. And folks, stay with us when AOA returns. We'll be joined by Arlen Suderman of StoneX to take a look at what all's moving in the market. Stay with us on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Young farmers don't listen to the radio, right? Wrong. In a recent survey, 74% of young producers said they get their most important agricultural information from their trusted farm radio station. Surprised? Don't be. If you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Radio is the perfect companion because it goes with you everywhere. Whether you're in the shop, on the combine, or in the truck, Farm Radio is right there with you. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. As we take a look at the market trade, grain sector mostly lower across the board, being led down by Minneapolis spring wheat as the wheat markets continue the correction that began five weeks ago. Now, USDA did announce two new sales early this morning. We sold 176,784 metric tons of corn to Mexico for this marketing year and sold 120,000 metric tons of soybeans to unknown destinations for the 22-23 year. 
Now the commodities each have their own supply and demand fundamentals, and the market's job is to manage supply and demand. History suggests that the markets manage supply and demand at a lower level during times of deflation and a higher level during times of inflation. Money flows into the commodity sector as a hedge to protect portfolios against inflation during times of rising prices, while the opposite is true during times of falling prices, and that's a lot of what we have been seeing here lately. Now, the grading oil seed sector continues to see money flow out as portfolios are rebalanced and ahead of next week's big set of January USDA reports that are known for their surprises. Right now, March corn, that's down four, five ninety-nine and three quarters. May corn down four to quarter, six at a quarter. January beans down a half penny, thirteen seventy-six at three quarters. March soybeans four to quarter lower, thirteen eighty-three. January bean meal down two ninety a ton, four seventeen fifty. Bean oil for January up 25 points at 59.03. March Chicago wheat three lower, 743. March Kansas City wheat down seven, 761 and a half. March spring wheat 17 and a quarter lower, 906 and a half. Mixed action in livestock. February live kettle down 15 at 137.20. April down 25, 142.20. January feeder kettle down 17, 162.40. February lean hogs 127 lower, 81.67. Crude oil down six cents a barrel at 79.40. This is AOA. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going. <laughs> hey, listen, it's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA. We're moving along here on this Friday, January 7th, and it's time to take a look at the markets. Joining me today is Arlen Suderman of Stone X. Arlen, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. Great to be back with you, Mike. Uh, and I'm just counting the days till we're back to summer again. <laughs> It'll be here. It just got a little more cold to get through. Arlen, before we look at the grain markets, I want to get your thoughts. I got an email this morning from Bloomberg, and there was a headline in there that said, we have peaked the inflation, and now we should start moving down. They're asking, has inflation peaked? Arlen, you watch all aspects of the economy. Have we? Has, has, have we gotten through the worst of the inflationary move upwards here in the broader economy? Let's see, how many months in a row have the, has that headline been out there? Uh, and it just keeps going higher. I do think that we're going to see some aspects of inflation start to moderate. Uh, for example, we've had some moderation in energy prices, and energy prices have been one of the primary components of inflation. Um, the other thing is supply chain disruptions have been one of the sources, and that was primarily what uh, Washington has focused on, both the Fed and the fiscal government side, saying, oh, inflation was going to be transitory for two months, maybe. And that was about a year ago, and of course, it's continuing to get stronger. Uh, those aspects in some sectors are starting to improve, so we're seeing some easing inflation pressures there. But we're seeing other areas where it's increasing. And for example, this morning's jobs report showed uh, increasing upward wage pressure. And uh, I, I think we could question, looking at some of the data, whether we have fully seen the full extent of wage inflation. And of course, wage inflation tends to show up most in the service sector. And the service sector, uh, well, the Federal Reserve, when it looks at inflation, follows the uh, personal consumption expenditures data, 
uh, and that tends to lean more heavily on the service sector. So I think there's a lot of different areas I could go on and on that we're going to see continued inflation pressure. Will we continue higher to levels that we saw 40 years ago? I don't think we can say that yet. I don't think that we can rule that out at this point. I do think that I do have a lot of confidence, I guess I would say, that we're probably going to remain at elevated levels of inflation, see some fluctuation month to month, but overall elevated levels until we remove the trillions of dollars of stimulus that are in the economy. And that could be measured different ways. And depending on how you measure, you could say there's anywhere from 4 to $8 trillion worth of stimulus still in the economy, even though the Fed is ratcheting down its stimulus program. That just means that they're slowing down the rate at which they add more stimulus, but the existing stimulus is still there. And as long as that's there, that keeps consumer demand at elevated levels, putting stress on the system at a time when we're also seeing more workers retire early because the stock market's done so well. We've lost about three to four million, depending how you measure it, people to early retirement out of our labor force. Um, so there's a lot of factors in play. Long answer to a short question, but uh, I, I chuckle when I see these predictions that inflation is done because I've been hearing that every month now for the about past year. Yeah, although now it does seem like we're starting to take some concrete moves to address it. The Federal Reserve this week changed uh, changed their approach a little bit. Arlen, do you think they're on the right page from a policy perspective with regard to inflation? Yeah, excuse me for being skeptical, but you do raise a good question here. Now, the Federal Reserve has a track record of leading from behind. Um, they tend to follow academic theory more than they do practical theory. And uh, so that tends to be behind what's actually happening in the real world. Uh, when uh, um, Fed Chair Jerome Powell was seeking renomination by President Biden, uh, he was the world's biggest dove. As soon as he got the nomination from President Biden, his next concern was, how do I get confirmed by the Senate? Well, Every elected official now is hearing about inflation, so that means he had to take inflation serious, and his tone changed immediately. So, But his voting members on his uh, Federal Open Market Committee, the branch of the Fed that makes monetary policy, they had been switching more hawkish for quite some time, and he was trying to keep them in line, um, but now he's flipped to side with them. The question is, with the several rate hikes that they're projecting for this year, which now they're looking to speed up, probably start as early as March, and even talking about uh, discussions about when to start removing stimulus from the economy, that is a big switch. And so the question is, will they be too aggressive and shut things down too quickly, removing that stimulus too fast, or will they be too slow? If they're too aggressive, that brings down the economy, reduces demand for commodities, and we see a collapse down in money coming out of the commodity sector, and that's how it affects us here in ag country. If they're too slow, which is right now my bias that they're going to be, then that means that inflation continues to have momentum behind it, and we still have money coming into the commodities because consumer demand remains strong. If you look at the interest rates that they are currently projecting, it would still be below the rate that the market is saying that inflation is going to be in the years ahead, which means that uh, a, a real, in real terms, it's a negative net return. And so I think that's another indicator that they're currently, even though they're taking inflation serious, they say they're still, their plan of action is too conservative. Even if inflation sticks around, Arlen, it doesn't impact every agricultural commodity the same. And even though we've got inflation concerns right now, we are still seeing this sell-off in the wheat market. Uh, both Chicago, hard red winter, and spring wheat are selling off. As you look at the spring wheat market, Arlen, what's driving this sell-off today? Yeah, you're right about that. And it doesn't affect every commodity the same. It's kind of the rising tide lifts all boats, but within that, you can have sharp sell-off in any one or even in the sector as a whole from time to time. 
Wheat specifically is one of those commodities that is grown around the world in many different places. Overall stocks among the major exporters are rather snug, so the market has responded to that. But the United States, there still is competition out there, and the United States, market, the U.S. market, had gotten to a point where it was no longer competitive. And then the prices would come down, and we'd quickly become competitive again. Demand would come up, both domestically and export. And so we were in a sideways trading range. Well, this last time when they came down, they broke chart support, and then it became a technical sell-off. And buyers said, well, if the market's coming to me, I'm just going to let it go and see how low it can go. So that's what we're in the middle of now. Additionally happening right now, because corn and wheat had had significant gains in 2021, portfolio managers are reducing their ownership of corn and wheat in their portfolios to rebalance them to their desired levels. That takes place, that's going to be completed now by next Thursday is the expectation. That's also one day past the USDA reports, which are known for their surprises as well. And then I think we'll have the funds relook at this whole ag commodity sector again in light of having been rebalanced and the new numbers from USDA. Well, Arlen, that USDA supply and demand report coming out next Wednesday on the corn side. Are you expecting any big changes? January can be a wild card. Yeah, uh, the big question on the corn side is going to be the quarterly stocks report that's known for the surprises there. Uh, that has big implications for feed usage. And um, so that's if they're a surprise. And as long as I've been tracking them, uh, surprises in the stocks reports can be illogical in the direction in which they move. Okay. Which direction are you anticipating here? Do you think we'll see a bigger drop in stocks than the market's currently figuring? Yeah, as I said, it's kind of illogical which way the surprises are, but uh, there is some indication that USDA may be understating feed use a bit, so maybe that would suggest a little bit smaller stocks, but also comes down to how well have they done in predicting the size of the 2021 crop. Over on soybeans, Arlen, are you expecting any big changes on the balance sheet over there? Uh, there's two areas to watch closely. One would be um, the size of the South American crop. Our Brazil team lowered our estimate for Brazil's crop by 11 million metric tons to 134 million metric tons. A couple other estimates have come out very close to that number as well since we released ours on Monday. Um, that would be one number to watch. I don't think USDA will be that aggressive, but it does suggest downward movement. The other is what will they do with U.S. exports? And the thinking is now they'll start ratcheting down U.S. exports because we're seeing the window of opportunity to ship to China close early this year because of the early harvest in Brazil, where their soybeans are, are priced about 70 cents cheaper than U.S. beans per bushel. So we've got concerns there. And I, yes, Stonex was first to the market, really, with that big reduction in Brazilian crop. The harvest that's happening right now, um, how is this crop looking? What have you heard from down in Brazil on their soybeans? Harvest starts in the center west of the area of Mato Grosso. Yields have been good, uh, as we expected. Uh, the further we get into the harvest, then the yields will start dropping because we'll head toward the south where the driest areas were, particularly in the southern 35% of the belt, where we could see reductions of 25 to 30% in yield. Oof, and that harvest is going to get underway here. We've probably got about a month maybe before those combines start to roll if there's anything to harvest. Uh, they've been harvesting for the last nine days. All right. It is underway. Arlen Suderman, always with the freshest news from around the world. Thanks for joining us. And folks, stick around. When we come back, Chad Colby was at CES in Vegas, and he'll give us an update. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. You are not your diagnosis. A medical chart is not your identity. And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven to. To be a beacon of strength a champion of courage, an advocate for hope. 
you are not alone. Because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding. We're fighting macular degeneration. Retinitis pigmentosa. Usher syndrome. And the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases. We fund. We fight. We We win. We, we, we We are are the the Foundation foundation Fighting fighting blindness. Blindness. Together, we are fighting blindness. Join the fight at fightingblindness.org. I'll take dig a little, learn a lot for 30 bushels. Soft and crumbly. Tom. How does healthy soil feel to the touch? Correct. Dig a little for 40 bushels. Sweet and earthy. Tom. What does healthy soil smell like? Yes, go again. Dig a little for 50 bushels. Dark, porous, and alive. Tom. What does healthy soil look like? You win. Understanding the basics and benefits of healthy soil can make your farm a winner, too, through lower input costs, better yields, and drought protection, which can lead to a healthier bottom line for your business. Contact your local Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out how you can unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service and this radio station. The landscape of media has changed and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. Oh, nice engine. Supercharged? Yep. High porosity and aggregates? Yep. Porous medium for gas exchange? Uh Uh-huh. Microbial catalytic potential and repository for carbon and nitrogen? Check, check, and check. Oh, man, that is good under the hood. And to think I used to be impressed with hammies. So... When was the last time you looked under the hood at your farm's production engine? At your soil? Is it as healthy and productive as it can be? Stop by your local USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out and unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by NRCS and this radio station. Every day, DTN and Progressive Farmer editors are posting unique original content to their website at DTNPF.com, bringing you the latest news and information you need for your day-to-day business decisions. Their award-winning newsroom covers markets, news, and weather, while also providing insights on crop, cattle, equipment, technology, and more. They are committed to delivering the essential intelligence farmers need every day to help your farm business be more efficient and profitable. Visit DTNPF.com today. Recently on Agriculture of America, University of Illinois professor Gary Schnitke has been looking at projected break-evens for the 2022 crop. Gary, what did you find as you look out to this next growing season? As we're looking at uh, total cost, and this would be for producing an acre of corn, we're looking at cost over $1,000 per acre. That's the first time that has happened on average in Illinois, if it does in fact happen in 2022. $1,064 is the precise estimate we're, we're looking at in central Illinois, but uh, that is a record level. And that's um, over, uh, over $100 higher than the 2021 uh, cost. And it, again, is a record level of total cost of producing corn. And uh, a lot of that's led by fertilizer, but all costs have gone up. For the information important to rural America, join us every day right here on AOA. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. 
Welcome back to AOA. We are talking here on this Friday, and we are going to talk about technology. Chad Colby, the tech contributor for This Week in Agribusiness, had the chance last week to go to Las Vegas. Not a terrible gig. Travel out there, see the sun, and learn about what new tech was coming from the Consumer Electronics Show CES. Chad, thanks for talking to us. Hey, good morning, Mike. It's, uh, it's a fun time of year when you can go geek out a little bit at that mega show in Vegas. So for listeners like me who have never been to CES, Chad, what is it and how many people are there? So basically what the Consumer Electronics Show is, or CES, it's just one of the largest consumer electronics shows in the world. And we're talking everything from toasters to devices that'll fold your clothes, Mike, to lots of things in the automobile industry from sensors and cameras and of course we've got all the electric vehicles this year there's just pretty much everything under the sun but the one thing that's really interesting about this particular show is the industry in a whole so we're talking anything from a consumer electronics standpoint about 25 percent of the products that you would see here will not come to market it's where people where the companies get a chance to showcase some of their new stuff, maybe it's robotics, some other forms of automation, feel out the market, and then decide which way to go with the product, which is always super cool. And, you know, when we think about consumer electronics, Chad, I'm not hearing a lot about agriculture, but the ag industry made a splash at CES this year. Yeah, they did. So this started about four years ago. Um, there was a, a couple of different companies that did some work at CES, just more to get you know, consumer education in place. And John Deere was kind of the mainstay. They've been doing this. And in the past, they've had a sprayer, they've had a combine, they've had different equipment in the booth and, and talked about some of the technology. But this year, John Deere did kind of make a pretty big splash when they unveiled their first fully autonomous tractor. Um, we're talking about, Mike, a user interface from your iPhone, from your tablet, to completely run your tractor in the field. Obviously, it's going to start with tillage but in its first, if you would, uh, process in the field work. But um, it's pretty humbling to see it. It's pretty neat. It made a big splash this week. Yeah, so you had the autonomous tractor and you were able to tape a piece on that, which will air this weekend on This Week in Agribusiness. Chad, I also saw that Bobcat had a fully electric skid steer. Did you have a chance to make your way over to that booth? Oh, I did, Mike, and that's that's another major game changer. Um, you're going to see that at Sunbelt Rental Stores this actually this year. It's got about a four-hour run time, takes eight hours to charge the battery in it. But get this, zero maintenance. There isn't any. They're absolutely and fluids on the machine is less than a quart. It's just phenomenal what that technology is doing. And the other thing, walking around that that show as well is. You know, here in the heartland of the Midwest, anywhere in farm and ranches, it's, you know, Dodge, Ford, Chevy. That's that's what that's the vehicles you have on the farm, certainly some Toyotas. But at this show, there were probably at least another six or eight vendors. We're talking Sony and other companies that are, are making battery-powered cars, EV electric vehicles. And that revolution is coming at us at a wave that I don't think many of us are quite prepared for, but it's coming quickly. Of the electric vehicles you saw there, how many were poised for production and how many might be in that 20% of the stuff at the show that never makes it to market? Chad, could you get a sense on how close they were to actual production on some of these? You know, that's a great question. It's kind of hard to judge, but I can tell you this, to get a feel of that market, this week Ford announced their Lightning F-150 that goes into production here soon. They're going to double the output to 150,000 trucks this year and of course chevrolet announced their new silverado that's battery powered coming here soon i believe that's 23 or 24. there's just a lot of technology and it's going down that path in a big way right now and we all know it's a matter of time before that really starts leaning into the agriculture space yeah, the idea of the electric bobcat, it's only got four hours of runtime, but if you're feeding cattle and you just want something to fire up in the morning to fill the feed wagon and then you can get it right back on the charger, my goodness, that not having the fluids is just mind-boggling. How, how does it lift? It's not hydraulics? 
Yeah, it's uh, you know, it's all electric over hydraulic. Um, the thing that's pretty interesting about EV, and this is whether you're in a Bobcat or a car or a bulldozer, is you get 100% of your torque all the time. So many of your listeners across the country um, and a lot of my close friends have not had the ability to maybe drive a Tesla or, you know, drive any or, or use any items like that, like a battery-powered chainsaw. I think you hit the nail on the head. That ability in that Bobcat to just open the door, push the button, and the machine's 100% ready, and when you're done, you tap the button and get out is pretty phenomenal, especially from the performance standpoint. Um, I don't know if you have, Mike, had a chance to use some of this electric-powered equipment, whether that's a car or a chainsaw, but it's a completely different user experience. And I think that's the key in this is when you can start taking this technology, be more efficient, do a better job, that's what it's all about. And it's, and don't get me wrong, it's certainly great to have no maintenance like that Bobcat got too. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the selling selling point to me, somebody with zero mechanical skills to not have to do maintenance. That's one less thing I won't be doing. Chad, the the crux of this EV thing, though, is batteries. If, if we don't have batteries, if we only get four hours of runtime, you know, it's it's tough to justify the expense. What was your sense on battery technology? Is it continuing to grow in uh, in capacity like it had been over the past five or 10 years? Yeah, 100 percent. That was one of the questions I asked one of the fellows from Bobcat. I said, is this designed? that in four years or six or whenever there's the new wave of battery technology, you can remove the battery, drop it, and he goes, oh, absolutely. So you're, you're 100% right, Mike. I, I, I think we can just look at Tesla. They're making, you know, a half a million cars a year now, and they're certainly a lot better today than they were a few years ago, and that's going to continue, Mike. These changes are unstoppable. Chad Colby, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. You bet. And folks, tune in on Monday. We'll be talking to Jackie Fatka about what's happening in Washington, D.C. And John Brannick of DTN Weather will also be with me to look at the week ahead. Have a great weekend, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to AOA. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Today, more than 6 million Americans are living with Alzheimer's, and more than 11 million family members and friends serve as their caregivers. While researchers are working tirelessly to end Alzheimer's and all other dementia, the number of people living with Alzheimer's is expected to more than double by 2050. The toll of the disease is monumental, and its devastation affects family, friends, and especially caregivers. No one should face Alzheimer's and dementia by themselves, if you or someone you know is struggling to provide care to a loved one, please share this message. You are not alone. Free help and resources are available 24-7. To talk with an expert and obtain disease-related information, care and support services, call 800-272-3900 or visit the Alzheimer's Association website at alz.org. You are not alone.